welcome to episode 28 of the Positive Thinking and the Meaning of Life podcast. My name is, as ever, Marcus Freestone, and this is part five of our series on negative thinking, which is about the work of Colin Wilson. And before I start, I don't want to seem to be jumping on any populist bandwagons, but I would like to dedicate this episode to Stephen Hawking. And for Americans, you'll notice there's no S on the end of his name. <clears throat> anyway, I read the brief history of time in my mid-twenties. It had a profound effect on me. It's one of the best written and most easily comprehensible books on hardcore physics that I've ever read out of all the hundreds I read back then. And if ever there's an example of positive thinking and of living a life embodied by all the things that I'm going to talk about from Colin Wilson, then it was Stephen Hawking, somebody who should have died in his early 20s, lived to the age of 76. And I'm pleased as a fan of his work that most of the media seem to be focusing equally on his scientific achievements as well as his disability and his fame and, and all that. Because he really was one of the most important scientists of the last hundred years, one of the most important people of the last hundred years. If you don't know anything about physics, if you look into what he did, he made massive contributions to the Big Bang Theory, not just the TV programme, mm -ha, uh, the actual scientific theory and black holes. He was a pioneer of working on that and on, on the work to, to unite relativity with quantum theory and work towards a theory of everything, which is the ultimate goal of physics. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to him because if ever there's an example of positive thinking and leading a, leading a life of the mind and, you know, living life to the maximum, then, then it was him. So uh, RIP Stephen Hawking. So Colin Wilson was an English writer and thinker. He was born in 1931 and he died a few years ago at the age of 82. He kept writing till the end despite having a severe stroke and I read at least two of the books he wrote after he had the stroke in his mid-70s and there was absolutely no sign of any cognitive impairment whatsoever. He was as sharp and incisive and as good a writer as ever. He wrote over a hundred books in the 60s, 70s, 80s, he did extensive lecture tours in America, Australia and all over the world and was had a couple of periods of being extremely famous. But he mainly shunned all that and spent most of his life after his first book came out in the 50s, um, avoiding the press and living a quiet life with his wife and kids in, in a remote cottage in Cornwall where they lived to the end of their lives. And I first came across the work of Colin Wilson in my early 20s when I was sort of looking to understand my own brain and why it didn't do the things that I wanted it to and he's been a huge influence on me and, and continues to be so and he he was a big fan of Gurdjieff and Auspensky he wrote an excellent book called The War Against Sleep about Gurdjieff which I'd recommend to anyone and uh, his main work to The Outsider his first book which is a bit as I said to one of my listeners who's just bought it on my recommendation, which is great, it's a bit kind of pretentious in a literary sense. It's, I think it's trying too hard to be over-literary, but he was 24 when he wrote it. But it's an it's a, an exposition of all the great existential 
writers, but you can see his own theories coming through. And then his masterwork really was his 1970 book, The Occult, which I have in front of me. Now, please don't be put off by my use of the word occult. I think it's unfortunate that he gave the book that title. But as he said himself, the book wouldn't have sold anywhere near as well if he didn't. But in fact, the word occult itself, the actual word, simply means hidden. And Colin Wilson was using it in the sense of the hidden psychological potentials of human beings that are locked away in our subconscious, but that we we let fester and ignore because we're so wrapped up in the immediacy of our consciousness and the the stress and over sensory stimulation of everyday life. And that was very much the core of his work. So I'm going to start by reading a sort of chopped down version of a couple of pages from the occult that I've put together for you. So I say this book was written in 1970. So he, he, in the beginning, he's talking about uh, a man who gets married and to begin with, he's very happy. And then he talks about after a few years, there's a struggle of paying the bills and everything. And he says he is now drifting towards what psychologists of 50 years ago called a hyperesthetic condition in which life becomes a series of insurmountable obstacles. Every molehill becomes a mountain. His whole psychological being is a series of rooms in which he has left lights switched on and life has become a burden. Some people become so accustomed to this state of permanent hypertension that they accept it as their normal condition and take it for granted that they lose their hair at 35 and develop ulcers at 40. Observe that the basic characteristic of this state is that you cease to notice things. Like a man running for a train you no longer have time to turn your head to left and right. And even when you have caught the train, you don't relax and look out of the window as any normal child would. The inattention continues. You try to read a newspaper or perhaps simply stare blankly in front of you, your mind grinding away at its worries. And then he talks about the same person going away on holiday. And he says... It is as if a spring of vitality has suddenly bubbled into consciousness. He has ceased to be passive and depressed. He looks at the scenery with intense interest or listens with pleasure to the local gossip in the bar of a pub. The inner strain has relaxed. He is no longer wasting his vital energy. And because he is noticing things again, his feedback mechanism begins to work. The pleasure he gets from the sight of a tree in the rain means that his senses begin to reach out, to expect things to be delightful and interesting, which in turn means that his springs of vital energy become more abundant. To look at things with interest is to refresh the mind, because when you concentrate seriously upon small details, you release the general hypertension in the rest of your mind, and your vital springs are renewed. When a human being is healthy, they concentrate on one problem at a time, put all their sense of purpose into it and maintain a high level of vital feedback from their environment. They do things slowly with deep interest and when they begin to get tired, they slow down and let their subconscious powers do the work of renewal. They recognise that overtiredness and the depression and defeat that comes with it constitute a vicious circle that must be avoided 
if they are to be efficient and healthy. And finally, he says, the point to observe here is that although hypertension may not be necessary, it is as widespread as the common cold. It would not be inaccurate to say that all human beings live in a state of vigilance and anxiety that is far above the level they actually need for vital efficiency. It is a general tendency of consciousness to spread the attention too thinly, and, like an overexcited child with too many toys on Christmas Day, the result is nervous exhaustion. So those few paragraphs really are a very good summation of the life and work of Colin Wilson. And those of you familiar with Gurdjieff and Auspensky will recognise strong echoes of their work as well and their writings in those words. So Colin Wilson's thesis of human existence, which was a mixture of mainstream psychologists like Abraham Maslow, who I think he actually met and maybe even worked with slightly or lectured with in the 60s, perhaps. It was a mixture of psychology and esoteric work like Gurdjieff and Ouspensky and theosophy and all sorts of things. And he did what I've done, which is take the things that you like from a system of thought and apply those and disregard, eschew the things that that you don't agree with, you don't need or don't find practicable in your own life. And I've given myself the license to do this since I was a teenager. And I also give myself the license to do this with Colin Wilson, because no doubt in order to uh, the necessity of, of making money and earning a living, he wrote lots of books on ghosts and supernatural phenomena and psychic phenomena and those sort of things and he did seem I think he genuinely believed in some elements of that uh, which I don't I have no belief in anything spiritual or supernatural or metaphysical whatsoever as I stated many times on the podcast and in the book but uh, so those those elements of Colin Wilson's work I, I pretty much disregard but thankfully 80% at least of his work is I suppose could be summed up as a I suppose really a form of existential psychology that's what it an existential psychology is a field that exists in uh, among psychologists in fact that's something I'll have to do a, a an episode on at some point in the future but yes I think existentialism and psychology that's the core basis of, of Colin Wilson's work and his essential statement about the way we live was that in our natural state we are we exist with a, a symbiotic harmony an easy symbiotic harmony between our conscious and subconscious minds and we function well and we function in the way that a person who was doing what Gurdjieff called the work would function in that the the physical and the, the cognitive and the emotional sides of your nature are all working in harmony and not fighting against each other and we're able to concentrate on things and we're able to achieve things relatively easily and Colin Wilson thought that that was 
the natural state of human consciousness, but that for the vast majority of the time, the vast majority of people are not living in that natural state. We're living in this unnatural state of anxiety and depression and worry and being what Gurdjieff and Ospensky would call inefficient, but we are we are not we are working inefficiently in terms of our cognition our emotions and our physicality and if you look at the world today in the 21st century the the epidemic of obesity of anxiety of depression of loneliness you can see that a lot of human beings in the west are not functioning properly and I can attest to that because it's only recently that I've begun to function with any degree of harmony at all. I spent most of my life in a state of depression and anxiety and paranoia and being inefficient in all those three aspects of myself. And the other thing which is very positive about Colin Wilson's work is he said it's actually, and you've got a flavour of it in those words I read there from his book, The Occult, he's, he 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 says that it's actually pretty it's pretty easy to get yourself into this harmonious state and avoid this hypertension but all it requires is a very small effort and there's another bit there i can't i won't quote it directly but i'll, I'll surmise it he says that the other thing the the frustrating thing about human consciousness is when you get into that harmonious state where you are, say you go for a 10-mile walk and you're enjoying the, the countryside and the scenery and you, you feel full of energy and endorphins and you're in a good mood and life is clearly worth living and you feel great and you have ideas, you feel creative or positive or whatever you're, you're doing in your life, you look forward to tomorrow and the rest of your life, Sometimes you can just you can accidentally get yourself into that state. You don't consciously do it, just as you often don't consciously get yourself into a negative state. Although sometimes you do, as we've discussed in previous episodes. And I completely agree with this point. What Colin Wilson said was the frustrating thing about human consciousness is that you get yourself either deliberately or accidentally into this positive harmonious state of mind where the three elements of you are working together but he said it's amazing how you get into that state but unless you make repeated small conscious efforts to maintain it it disappears and just think you know when just think back to the last time you had a really good day when you had a night out or you you went for a lovely day out in the countryside or you were just doing something creative or you're reading a brilliant novel or you listen to a new album of music by a band that you love or you were writing or painting or whatever you like to do just think back to the last time you had a great day like that and then think about how long that state of happiness and contentment how long did that last? Did it last the whole of the day? Did it last a week? Did it last a month? Did it last a year? Almost certainly not. We seem to, like somebody who's bipolar, we seem to just, our state of mind seems to be so ephemeral, just as if we are a piece of paper in a hurricane. 
that it takes so little to just knock us off balance and pull us into a different state, usually a more negative state. And, and I've experienced this in my own life many, many times. It does take, it takes effort to, to maintain a positive attitude. Perhaps there are some people, and in fact there are, I've met people who just seem to be in a good mood all the time, but I think that's not really possible. I, I think that's a case of sort of, you know, the lady doth protest too much. They may have the outward appearance of being, in fact, I know, <laughs> in fact, I know because my girlfriend does it. She presents a very positive front to the world, even when she's feeling terrible inside. And Stephen Fry has talked about the same thing, that when his bipolar was making him suicidal, he would go and present QI, which is a brilliant TV show he used to do if you uh, if you haven't seen it, um, and sometimes he would be there and he would be smiling and laughing and joking, and inside he would be thinking, oh, I just wish I was dead. And that's a skill that he has to be able to present that front to the world. And my girlfriend is excellent at doing it, so that most people wouldn't know there's anything wrong with it. I can't do that. Um, if I'm depressed or anxious or ill in some cognitive or mental way, I just have to hide away and lick my wounds and just sort of, you know, just quietly scream and they'll just get drunk or whatever. I, I can't put that front out to the world. Um, anyway, getting a bit sidetracked there, but um, getting back to Colin Wilson, he said, the, the, you need to make this, you need to make this effort to, to maintain this positive, harmonious state of life. And I think the problem is, and I certainly Gurdjieff would agree with this, and I, I'm sure Colin Wilson would as well. In my own experience, the problem is you're when you're in a positive frame of mind and things seem to be going well and you're enjoying your life, I think what happens is that subconsciously you relax. And just as when you're depressed or anxious, you assume you're always going to be in that negative state of mind. I think that's why most people commit suicide. That's certainly where I used to attempt or seriously contemplate suicide was because I felt so terrible and I thought well clearly I'm always going to feel like this because your emotions are are misfiring and are, are not functioning correctly and they're affecting the way you think your depression and anxiety it's a distortion of the natural function of your brain <laughs> just as you think, oh, I'm always going to feel like this, when you're in a good mood, you think, oh, great, things going great. Oh, I, 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 don't, need, I don't need to worry about it. Um, oh, things are great now. They'll always be great. And you don't, and in my experience, what happens is when the, the positive mood, the positive affect, when it begins to fade, because we are generally not in, touch with because we don't really learn uh, to observe ourselves in we don't learn what Gurdjieff called self-observation we're not really that aware most of the time of what's going on 
with our bodies and our, our brains and our emotions, and our thoughts, because we're not really aware of it, we don't notice when the good mood is evaporating and we're sliding into negativity. And by the time we notice, it's kind of it's too late to do anything about it. It then requires such an effort to get out of it that we think, oh, I can't be bothered now. And you just kind of mither on in the sort of pit of your own misery and despair until eventually something from outside prompts sort of forces you to to make the effort to you know get out of bed or or whatever to 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 shift this mood and Sartre also pointed who I'm going to do in a couple of weeks Sartre also pointed out that you know if he used the example of someone walking along the street and he's depressed and in a terrible mood and then he sees his best friend and then um he says that you know, in that situation, you sort of you force a smile and you you force yourself to be polite, and then after the the confrontation with your friend has ended, you are in a better mood. So, in the same way as Colin Wilson would say, Sartre is using that example to point out that we actually can control our our emotions and our thoughts. He's a lot more positive about it than Gurdjieff and Aspensky sometimes are. Sometimes, I think Gurdjieff said. In one of his books, uh, in fact, I read the quote out a couple of weeks ago, he said, do you think you can control your emotions? No, you can't. But I think we, we can, but it, requ- it requires an effort. So there's no need to be that pessimistic. But Sartre was pointing out there, in the same way that Colin Wilson would, that we can get ourselves, we can consciously, just like that, just click ourselves. I, I, I tried to click my I can never, I've never been able to click my fingers. I can touch my nose with my tongue and I can curl my tongue up into a ball, which some people can't do, but I can never... There, I can tap the microphone in an annoying way, but I can't click my fingers anyway. So you can get yourself out of a mood like that. (laughs) Uh, um, And equally well, so if you can consciously get yourself from a, a bad mood into a good mood, Sartre points out in being in nothingness, which I'll come on to in a couple of weeks, you can also conversely, of course, consciously get yourself from a good mood into a bad mood. So you can do that. But I think that a lot of the time we just, we don't notice. And so you, you uh, in Colin Wilson's view, you, you, you accidentally or purposefully, by some small conscious effort, you get yourself into a good frame of mind. But it never lasts. It's like, forgive the awful cliche, it's like a candle in the wind or a piece of paper in a hurricane, which maybe would have made a more interesting song title, certainly for the 1997 (laughs) (laughs) re-release. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, Good job I'm recording that. I must remember that. Anyway, come on, Marcus, back to the topic. Um, (laughs) So... In fact, I'm going to uh, I'm going to do another episode about Colin Wilson this week, uh, next week, because I'm very busy today and I've slightly lost the plot now because I'm distracted by all the other things I have to do almost immediately upon recording this. So, um, so we'll do another episode next week. But um, so just to finish, uh, Colin Wilson's basic ideas that he states over and over again is that. We have the innate ability to be positive and happy and to concentrate 
on anything that we need to do and to accomplish any cognitive tasks we need to. But we fall into this state of hypertension and then we don't make the required conscious effort to get ourselves out of it. So I'll end the episode there for now. And next week, I'll continue talking about Colin Wilson and we'll discuss his methods for maintaining positive states of mind and for avoiding negative states of mind and his his method for counteracting this subconscious hypertension that is, I think you'd have to agree, the state of most of us most of the time. So there we are. That's episode. Sorry for the pause there, but my um my screensaver clicked in then, and I thought, oh no, my computer's crashed. I've just lost everything. Okay, right. I'm going to stop and save this because I'm paranoid now about it crashing. Just been doing that lately with music projects. Um, anyway, so that was episode twenty eight of Positive Thinking and the Meaning of Life. And as ever, I hope that edits down into something coherent. And uh, so join me next week for episode 29, where we'll finish off our little series on uh, negative thinking by uh, discussing further the work of Colin Wilson. There's a hell of a lot more to say, over 100 books. I haven't read them all, but I have read uh, a few dozen. So, uh, yeah, if you could post a nice comment on iTunes or uh, if you could subscribe to the I was going to say the Facebook channel. Oh, yeah, no, uh, like the Facebook page. Send me a message via Facebook or via email, marcus.freestone at yahoo.com. And, yeah, if you could subscribe to the YouTube channel, even if you get the MP3 from somewhere else, go to marcusfreestone.com. I'm uploading another couple of um, cover versions, hopefully later today. Another Depeche Mode one, Everything Counts, which is one of my favourite songs, and a Left Field one. I've done a cover of Madonna's Ray of Light, which is not the sort of music I like at all, but I've piled loads of guitars and distortion on it. I think it sounds quite cool. So go to the Marcus Freestone uh, YouTube channel for that. Go to the Positive Thinking and the Meaning of Life YouTube channel and the Facebook page, the Google Plus page. Join them, send me a message and stay positive and I'll see you next week to conclude Negative Thinking and Colin Wilson. And uh, here comes the closing theme music noises. <laughs>